stop, children. What's that sound? All of a sudden, everything's going down. Stocks, steel, lumber too. Investors are getting scared. How about you? Did inflation finally get our attention? Or is the Fed's sudden hawkishness causing some tension? Or maybe some of these bubbles just needed to let out some air. That rarely happens without giving us a scare. Wasn't it just a minute ago that we were at all-time highs? When sentiment suddenly turns, it can catch us by surprise. We can't deny the economy was running a little hot. The Fed's starting to agree. Did you see that dot plot? But if you've been paying attention, you knew this was coming. Stocks have been peaking. You could hear the drums drumming. We can panic, throw up our hands and obsess, or we can keep rolling on the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome aboard, and what a difference a week makes. U.S. equity markets are coming off their worst week since October, and last Friday saw steep losses across the major averages as sentiment made a big shift. It's risk on all of a sudden, and we haven't felt those winds in our faces for months. In just the past few weeks, U.S. equity investors have re-rotated from value back to tech and healthcare, with the Nasdaq outperforming the Dow and the S&P 500 since mid-May. Transport stocks, including our favorite railroads, they're down 7% from their all-time highs, and those were just two weeks ago. Investors floated back to tech in search of growth, but they seem less willing to pay for growth, especially among the mega caps. Check this out. Analyst estimates for Amazon's per share profit over the next 12 months rose more than 40% from the end of December through last week, according to FactSet. But since Amazon's share price rose only 7.1% so far this year, the stock's forward price-to-earnings multiple contracted from nearly 73 times to about 55 times. That's still high, but not for Amazon. It likes those elevations. What about Netflix? Expectations for forward earnings have risen while its share price has fallen 14.5% from recent highs. That's a correction. And it has compressed the stock's price-to-earnings ratio from almost 60 at the end of 2020 to about 43 last week. How about Apple? Its projected earnings have also increased while its share price is nearly unchanged. It traded last week at about 25 times expected earnings, down from about 32 times at the end of 2020. How about commodities? After soaring for most of 2021 amid the economic recovery, prices started free-falling last week. Futures for palladium and platinum fell more than 11% and 7% respectively, along with declines of more than 6% for corn futures and 4% for contracts tied to copper. Good old Dr. Copper. Oil prices also fell more than 2%. Well, how about lumber? After rallying 400% over the past year, prices are down 43% since late May. Did demand suddenly evaporate for these hard goods? Hardly. But the value of the U.S. dollar against other major currencies keeps dropping and commodities are priced in dollars. As inflation rises here in the U.S., the greenback keeps falling and it's pulling commodity prices down with it. The Federal Reserve acknowledged last week that the economy is running a little hotter than expected, and the majority of FOMC members indicated last week that the Fed will raise interest rates at least twice in 2023. Last Friday, St. Louis Fed President James Bullard, who's not a voting member of the Federal Open Market Committee, said one of those rate hikes may come as soon as next year. Forget it, Donnie. You're out of your element. Take it easy, Walter. How are those cryptocurrencies doing? Well, most are under pressure again as China continues to crack down on Bitcoin mining and its usage. The price of Bitcoin, which is also priced in dollars, fell back to $32,000 Monday morning, down 7%. And altcoins are following that path as well, with Ether down 8%, Binance down 7%, and Dogecoin, that little joke of a coin, down 14%. Let's get ready for the week ahead. 
After a challenging week for equity investors, this week will bring us an interesting batch of corporate earnings reports and a heavy dose of economic data. Investors will approach the second half of the year knowing the Fed's projections on inflation, which now stand at 3.4% for 2021, that's up from 2.4%, as well as its intention to raise interest rates at least twice in 2023. Big tech will be in the spotlight this week as the U.S. House Judiciary Committee is expected to vote on a package of antitrust bills aimed at companies including Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and potentially Microsoft. If the House Judiciary Committee votes to support those bills, their next step will be in the House of Representatives, then the Senate, and then if passed, to President Biden's desk. It's a long road from here, but this is the way the wind is blowing. The earnings calendar perks up again this week as a few bellwethers are due to report results, including FedEx and Nike. FedEx is the ultimate transport stock, and it's feeling the squeeze of the global supply chain. Shares of the shipper are up 107% in the past year, but only 9% so far in 2021. Shares of Nike are down 9.5% year-to-date as the company is facing potential boycotts in China, which accuses the athletic apparel giant of making products that are, quote, harmful to children. China is a pretty important market for Nike, so let's keep an eye on that situation. Amazon's annual shopping extravaganza, Amazon Prime Day, it starts today and it runs through Tuesday. The e-commerce giant promises more than 2 million deals over 48 hours. Big box retailers like Target, Walmart, and Best Buy will also be running competing deals in an effort to hold market share. Good luck with that. Analysts are projecting sales of 11 to $12 billion for Amazon for Prime Day, but the key for the company is signing up more Prime subscribers around the world. On the U.S. housing front, the U.S. housing market has shown some signs of cooling in the past month, but it still remains fairly warm amid low borrowing rates and tight inventories. We'll get reports on existing and new home sales Tuesday and Wednesday, in addition to weekly mortgage applications. Mortgage applications jumped last week, but most of that activity was around refinancing. The Bank of England meets this week on interest rates, and most economists are not expecting a rate hike or any significant changes to its current monetary policy. But, like the U.S. Central Bank, many are expecting the BOE to indicate that it, too, plans to hike interest rates at least twice in 2023. Back here in the U.S. on Friday, we'll get another reading on U.S. consumer sentiment and expectations for June. The most recent reading showed an uptick in sentiment as inflation fears ebbed, but that was before the Federal Reserve's comments and projections last week. Now that we know inflation will be higher than 3% for this year, it will be interesting to see if sentiment and expectations remain firm. 27.9 billion hours. That's how much time we spent streaming content in 2020, according to Streamlabs, a near 73% rise from 2019. Now, we all know the main reason we watch so much, but there was also so much supply out there in the media world. Inside the media world, the competitive dynamics are causing massive waves filled with mergers, spin-off, news channels, and platform launches. But we're also living in the land of giants where Apple, Netflix, Disney, and Amazon are throwing their weight around. It's fascinating to watch, and no one has a better eye on it than Sarah Fisher, the media and technology reporter for Axios and the byline behind the Axios Media Trends newsletter. Welcome to The Express, Sarah. So good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm such a fan of your newsletter. The the Axios Media Trends note comes out every week. I can't wait to open it. But what a year on your beat. What was the biggest surprise for you in the past 12 months of all the developments we saw across big media? 
Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for reading and thank you so much for giving me a plug. I think the biggest moment was at the beginning of the pandemic, probably March and April, where you started to see every single media company, even ones that were doing exceptionally well, ring an alarm and say, without advertising, we are going to have to lay off a lot of people. And you saw that happen. People were taking pay cuts. We even had a very long list of media companies accepting PPP loans. It was just startling to see how quickly the industry thought things were going to go bad. And, you know, it's amazing to reflect on it. Now, a year later, the economy didn't crash. We're not in a recession. A lot of the precautions that these media companies took to weather the storm ended up being important for the beginning of the pandemic, but they ended up probably over anticipating the challenges that they would face. And so, I'm glad that things have gotten better, but that was one of the most startling things I've ever covered, which was just that every single company thought they were doomed. Yeah. And then the bounce back has been so aggressive. So it really has been a tale of two media enterprises over the past 12 months, just like so many businesses. Let's unpack what's been happening in big media with the phone companies, AT&T and Verizon shedding their media assets. Why the unwinding now? And when they were so excited about it just two, three years ago, they were excited about the bundle, the content and the delivery tubes coming at the same time. Why do you think they're unwinding? Well, there's a few reasons. I think the biggest is that there was this notion that owning the pipes, the delivery mechanisms for content and owning the content together could create a really strong efficiency. And if you were able to provide that, you could lure more customers to your phone plans, to your internet plans, whatever it is that you were trying to sell as a telecom company. I think fast forward, we're realizing those efficiencies really don't exist, especially if you don't build it really well. There is an advantage if you're a streaming company in owning the direct-to-consumer delivery mechanism, so owning the streaming service and owning the content. But we haven't found that owning content makes your life easier if you're trying to sell a cell phone plan. And so I think one, they missed on that thesis. Two, they definitely missed on execution. If you take a look at what happened with AT&T Time Warner, there were no efforts to integrate quickly. They struggled to integrate from a cultural perspective. You know, AT&T is a phone company based in Texas. Time Warner, later renamed Warner Media under AT&T, is a media company based in New York with a studio in LA. And they just really failed to integrate them culturally. I think they misfired in their assumption that they could manage the content better than the existing content leaders. So what I mean by that is following the merger, you saw some people who are just incredible content executives. Think about the people like Richard Plepler at HBO leave because I think AT&T had no desire to respect or to maintain the creative process. They thought that they could just consolidate programming and do it better themselves that was a huge mistake. And I think moving forward, a lot of executives will learn from that. So that was on the AT&T side. On the Verizon side, that one's a little different. They weren't trying to make a streaming service with those properties. They were trying to build out a big advertising network. I think they realized as soon as they bought Yahoo and AOL that it was going to be nearly impossible to compete with Google and Facebook, even though there is a lot of data there. I mean, people forget that 
Verizon Media for the past few years has been one of the most trafficked website entities per comm score in the US. People forget that, right? They still use the CD-ROMs to load up their software. They still have the same email addresses. Yeah, it's always been really highly trafficked. The problem is to create a data platform for an advertising network that can adequately compete with Google and Facebook is so beyond challenging. It doesn't matter if you even have all the data in the world. You also need some of the best ad tech in the world. And I think they very quickly realized they were not going to compete with Google and Facebook on this scale. And they've made a bunch of different pivots. I mean, I remember covering everything, every excuse they've made under the sun for, from, you know, oh, we're going to use 5G to make this investment worth it, to we're going to launch subscriptions. And I think eventually they just realized we need to write down these investments. They did. And we need to spin them out because this just does not make sense for our business and it's a distraction. So man, whew, what a crazy few years. Yeah. And an expensive few years. And, you know, you've covered this industry for a while. I've been watching it for, you know, the better part of 25, 30 years. This has been tried before. We saw it with the cable companies. There's nothing new about wanting to own the delivery mechanism and the content at the same time, but not everybody's great at it, as you mentioned. But how big of a deal is the presence of an Apple and Amazon and Netflix in the content world? These are the giants. How much these platforms have grown, especially in Netflix, but look at the way Amazon and Apple have grown in terms of content production did they just effectively squeeze the cable companies out of the content game? I think that's a good point. And I don't know that I've ever heard it phrased that way. I think, so when it comes to creating content, there is something to be said for being in a standalone pure play content company with expertise. If you just take a look at numbers for how long a streaming show or any show stays in the zeitgeist of the American public, Disney for many, many weeks can make a show entertaining and popular and really inject it into the cultural heart of America. Netflix can't. And it's not because Netflix's original content is bad. It's just because creating original content requires not just, you know, an investment financially, which we know Netflix can do. It requires an orientation around understanding how to build franchises. And that really depends on how your company is structured. If you take a look at a company like Disney, they need to build franchises because every piece of content and IP they put out needs to get spun out into a Disney store, a Disney cruise, a Disney resort line, and a Disney theme park. Netflix, without that structure, their only ROI for content is whether or not it's going to get you to binge watch their streaming service. And so the reason I explain that is while Amazon, Apple, Netflix, well, these companies are investing in content. They still, in my opinion, just don't do it as well as Disney. I mean, they're good at creating content that they think is going to get you to subscribe and watch a few shows. Sure. But nothing they've built to me feels like a long lasting franchise that the public will relish for generations. I mean, yes, you have Handsmaid's Tale. Yes, you have House of Cards and Stranger Things. None of those, none of them stack up to a, even if you think of the recent stuff, none of them stack up to Frozen. And so, yes, there's a lot of challenges that they bring to the cable companies, but the, the pure play traditional entertainment companies, they still got a little bit of expertise behind their wings. Not to mention the fact that Disney can throw up an amusement park ride and an entire marketing franchise with lunchboxes and 
sneakers with you know the logos of the Marvel characters or whatever franchise they want to blow out. They can blow it out across all of their platforms. So it sounds like, and they had such an aggressive launch with Disney Plus, but the timing was perfect. We were locked at home. Everyone was looking for new content. Disney Plus came on the scene with a very low price point. Do you think that they, Disney, win the battle royale among the streaming giants over the next few years, or is there enough food on the table for everyone? And by everyone, I mean the Netflixes of the world, the Amazon Studios of the world, the Apples of the world. Is there enough for everybody? Can you just keep creating content and looking for subscribers outside of the U.S.? Yeah. I mean, the data shows that most people in the U.S., remember, the median household income is $46,000. So most households in the U.S. are only going to pay at most for like maybe even four to five streaming services, but probably more likely three to four. So the idea is what are going to be the big like two or three that everyone buys? And then there will be definitely room for ancillary services that are catering to niche interests. So for example, Peacock is not going to be one of those big five. We know that. But if you love love WWE and wrestling, you might still buy or get the Peacock subscription because it's exclusively airing there. So to your question of which ones are going to be the biggest, I think it's become pretty clear that the ones that will have this scale are the ones that are doing well, especially internationally. So that's Disney Plus and Netflix. I think there's becoming a very clear understanding that you kind of need to build a portfolio of services to compete with Netflix these days. So if you think about it, Disney as a standalone, Disney Plus versus Netflix is competitive, but Disney, Hulu, and ESPN Plus is super competitive against Netflix. And so you're going to start to see more strategies, I think, that look like that. If you take a look at what Discovery and Warner Media are doing with their merger, I think that's the play they're going for too, is it might not just be one streaming service. It might be a grouping or a bundling of them that combine to make themselves very attractive to compete against like a Netflix. So I think they're well-positioned. Obviously, I think Netflix continues to be well-positioned. I think Disney Plus is well-positioned. I think Viacom CBS's streaming service, Paramount Plus, is definitely too small to compete adequately, and they're going to have to merge. There's a lot of rumors about them merging with Comcast NBCU. However, they both own broadcast networks, so there would need to be some sort of a divestiture there in order for a merger of that size to be approved. And then, you know, you have a bunch of these littler guys, you have stars, you have Showtime, you have, again, some of these more niche services that they're absolutely going to need to get bought up either by the Apples, the Amazons of the world, and in order to compete. So that's kind of how I see it all shaken out. Let's talk tech and content. You recently wrote about tech giants like Facebook, Spotify, and Twitter racing to build and acquire new tools that will help them compete with the smaller upstarts for the attention of individual creators. They can target these niche audiences that are becoming so valuable to markets. What's happening inside these platforms? Yeah. So it used to be that you wanted professional grade content to distribute on your pipes. That was the model for entertainment for decades. And then when these tech platforms were built, like Google and Facebook, they were really being supported by user-generated content, content from you and me. And that's a really different scenario than anything we've ever seen. Fast forward 10, 15 years, and we're starting to realize that there's so much money being pumped into the ad market and being pumped into the internet that if you're really good at creating content, you could absolutely and very easily create a business doing that. And so the problem is all of these people, by the way, there's millions of them who consider themselves content creators. 
are looking at the internet landscape and they're thinking, I like to build my audience on YouTube, but I'm not really making substantial money. Some are, some are making good ad revenue. Same thing for Facebook. You have Instagram creators who have bajillions and bajillions and bajillions of followers, but like it's unclear exactly how they're supposed to hawk a product. Look at these really big podcasters. You know, for a long time, it was impossible to make money off podcasting. So now I think what the companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter and Spotify are realizing is the creators are there. We need to build tools so that they can make money. And if we do that and they become successful on our platforms, we will be able to host more content that we can sell ads against. It's better for our users, especially if we're able to convince a creator, if we pay them a little money, to give us their content exclusively. And it's also better just overall for their growth because if you rely on an ad-driven market and you're not thinking about new revenue streams like payments and transactions, being able for these companies to take a cut of whatever you know podcast revenue is made, it's not that that's not a good strategy relying on the ad market, but the ad market grows and has always grown in relation to the GDP. So it's not going to balloon forever. I mean, it's ballooning now post-pandemic. That means that the growth path is, it's very hard to grow enormously. You're going to just grow at a expected rate. If you invest in the creator economy, you have like so many more opportunities to be able to grow your business really quickly. And I think they're all seeing this happen. So now they're all racing to do it at the same time. And that's going to make a really great environment for content creators like you and me, but it makes it very competitive for the big tech giants like Facebook or Twitter good for us. But also that ability to target the niche audience is so key, especially in a cookie-less world, right? We're going to this cookie-less world where the Googles and the Facebooks of the world are not going to be able to track you site to site. It's got to be about intent. It's got to be about signing up. And I guess that's also, right, why these platforms are targeting these these individuals who have the following because the following and the ability to build community is so valuable in today's day and age. But you, you teased on one thing and final question here. In the audio world, there's something like 2 million podcasts out there right now, including this little one. We've seen eye-popping valuations, Sarah, and sales of podcast networks, Spotify into Amazon, et cetera. How much bigger can this get? And when you look at the what's happening in the clubhouses and the spaces of the world, how real is that business model? Yeah, such a good question. And well, I'll say one thing about this 2 million podcasts. So many of them don't make money. <laughs> you know, like you have an incredible podcast. You have a great audience. A lot of podcasters are struggling right now. They don't have the institutional backing of a big content company to help them promote and grow their audiences. And so because of that, the podcast industry right now is small. You know, it's only about a billion dollars in ad revenue, but that means there's a ton of room for growth. It's the fastest growing advertising medium that there is. And I think the opportunity is about to be massive. The problem is, when you want to bring monetization to a new medium, you need one or two players to consolidate end-to-end all of the technology and ad serving so that people have a way to make money efficiently. In the internet, you had two platforms that really did this well over the past 20 years, which were Google and Facebook. They consolidated all of the advertising and marketing technology with the audience, and they made it very easy for brands to come in and self-serve, buy an ad, and spend money. And once the brands started making a ton of money, now you're seeing the advertising revenues there, the creators are coming in. And so I think with podcasting, you're starting to see a few audio companies, Spotify, iHeart Media, SiriusXM, Amazon, to an extent, Apple, 
bring major investments. I mean, they're making hundreds of millions of dollars in acquisitions, to your point, so that they can build these end-to-end solutions, which would allow people to better monetize the podcast so that the industry, which is a billion today, can one day be 70 billion like the TV market. And once that happens, I think there's going to be not only an explosion in the number of podcasts, but there's going to be an explosion in the amount of ad revenue people can make off their podcasts and subscription revenue too. And so the industry will mature because more people will be able to make money. We, I cannot stress it enough, for as many people in the U.S. that listen to podcasts, I think Edison Research's latest number is that there's about 90 million people who actively listen to podcasts monthly. For as many people that listen to podcasts in the U.S., there, it is just such a teeny, tiny, tiny business. <laughs> and so I'm very, very bullish on podcasting, but I do think it's going to take more consolidation in the industry for it to grow uh, to its full potential. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. And a lot of people say audio is the future. And if you look at what's happening with Alexa and Siri and all these other voice recognition technology tools and the explosion of audio as a platform, I, I think you're right. There's there's room to run. Final question here on the way out. Hottest take for 2021. What is going to shock us by the end of the year that you're sort of back pocketing that you think may happen here? Ooh, I think the hottest take is that a lot of these media companies that wanted to go public via SPACs, like blank check, special purpose acquisition companies, are going to struggle because right now the SPAC bubble, it's cooling off. A lot of the institutional investors already put their money down for other SPACs. And so it's not going to be impossible you know, to go public via SPAC, but it's definitely going to be more difficult. And you saw tons of reports, BuzzFeed and Group9 and Bustle and Vice and Vice, Vox Media. I mean, I think some of these companies for sure are still planning on going public via SPAC. I know Bustle is. I spoke with their CEO on the record about it. But it's going to be challenging for all of them to ride the SPAC wave. And I think the biggest surprise of 2021 is that a lot of these companies that we thought were going to go public um, via SPACs are not going to go public via SPACs. And I don't know what they're going to do. Maybe it's something they go try to go public later via a more traditional process if they can. Maybe they try to sell. But I don't think everyone's going to be a publicly traded media company by 2022. I think you are spot on. That is a great call. And you are full of great calls. I learned so much just from listening to you and reading your stuff. Sarah Fisher of Axios, thanks so much for being our guest on The Express this week. Thank you so much. Loved being here. I'll talk to you soon. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Kate in Huntsville, Alabama. Kate suggests additional paid in capital as this week's term, or APIC as the pros call it. And I'm going to be honest with you. This is a new term for me, and I love learning new terms. According to my favorite website, additional paid in capital is an accounting term referring to money an investor pays above and beyond the par value price of a stock. Often referred to as contributed capital in excess of par, APIC occurs when an investor buys newly issued shares directly from a company during its initial public offering. Therefore, APICs, which are itemized under the shareholder's equity section of a balance sheet, are viewed as profit opportunities for companies who receive excess cash from shareholders. We haven't had a big IPO in a little while, but we know there are several on the runway, including Robinhood and Krispy Kreme, to name a few. Check out their S1 filings and see where their APIC stands if you're thinking about investing. Thanks, Kate. Great suggestion. And I just got a little bit smarter. You'll be getting a pair of the Dress Them Up, Dress Them Down Investopedia socks for your suggestion, and we'd like to see you sporting those at the beautiful Huntsville Botanical Gardens when it cools down a little bit there. 
We'll let President Jimmy Carter take us out this week. Here's the president making his famous anti-inflation speech on October 24th, 1978. The U.S. inflation rate was 8.9% at that time and was persistently high throughout his presidency. In fact, Carter led through a long four years of stagflation. That's high inflation combined with slow economic growth, and that's not a good recipe for the stock market or for the economy. The S&P 500 fell 3% during Carter's presidency, and he also had a national energy crisis to deal with. Reducing the deficit will require difficult and unpleasant decisions. We must face a time of national austerity. Hard choices are necessary if we want to avoid consequences that are even worse. I intend to make those hard choices. Today, the Federal Reserve says the inflation rate in 2021 will be 3.4%. Just keep the 1970s in mind if you think that's high. Stay grounded this week and let's hold our heads. It's going to be a rocky one. We'll talk to you again a little further on down the line. 